Thank you, Daniel. If you would, open your Bible and turn to chapter 5 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. It is a joy to be back home uh, with you all. Sarah and I took time last week to go on vacation, and she challenged me not to think too much while we were on vacation, uh, to really take a, a, a mental pause. So in an act of small rebellion, I agreed to that, but in an act of small rebellion, I snuck off from time to time and would listen to, I don't know if you all have ever had a chance to listen to Justice and Antonin Scalia ever give a, a, a speech, but besides being, in my opinion, a brilliant jurist, he was a fantastic orator. Uh, wouldn't agree with him theologically all the time, but a great guy. And, and anecdotally, uh, I, as I was listening to him, he shared this story about a friend of his named uh, Sher, Sherwood Sugden. He was a Canadian lawyer that uh, Justice Scalia had practiced law with in Cleveland prior to coming to the federal bench. And Mr. Sugden would always bemoan the state of the church. Now, this obviously had to have been sometime in the 60s or 70s probably. Uh, But he would bemoan the the, the state of the Protestant church and what he called its wishy-washy state. He had grown up in the Scottish Presbyterian vein of theology. And he would constantly tell Justice Scalia, when I grew up, In the wilds of Canada, we had real church. It wasn't that wishy-washy stuff. Every Sunday, the minister would get up, and in an accent that I can't replicate, but think that Scottish accent, he he would start by saying, Ah, so to your back are you, you worms. And then he would just launch into his sermon. Which I thought, my first thought was, what a fantastic way to start by declaring the problem that we all face, uh, that we are sinners in need of God's grace. But of course, I would never think of you that way. Um, But it does define the problem well. Alas, I will begin not there, but by drawing your attention to uh, our passage, a passage that we dealt with as a really used as a benediction the last time that I was here with you. That is John chapter 3. And of course, you'll remember this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, but I want to really focus here just briefly as a way of introduction in how Nicodemus, this great teacher, uh, this, this great man, handled what it meant to have knowledge. The passage begins... Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is an interesting exchange, to say the least. After a polite, reverential address by Nicodemus calling Jesus rabbi or teacher, he says emphatically this, we know. We have knowledge of this reality. And and, and then he makes this 
threefold profound statement of what is comprised in that body of knowledge that those who were looking on really understood. And that was, first, that Jesus was continuing to do many miraculous things. Secondly, that miracles were intended to authenticate the messenger, the person that God had sent. And third, that Jesus was who he claimed he was and that he should be listened to, given attention to. Now, if this was written today, there would be those who would be amazed at Nicodemus' perceptive insight. That this is a man who does miracles, and this is that, that miracles do authenticate the ones sent from God, and that Jesus is someone who should be given attention. But instead, we see Jesus responding in a way that is really surprising. Instead of a giddy response or applauding Nicodemus' observation, Jesus pivots and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. What we learn in this is that our approach to knowledge must not be something that we just observe with our senses. Our approach to knowledge as Christians is not merely just observing with our outward senses what we can perceive. To have knowledge in a scriptural, spiritual way means, as Jesus says, that we must be born again. Jesus ultimately points out to Nicodemus and to us our utter need for grace that we can't even see unless it were from God. We might see peripheral details. We might gather up a pile of knowledge about Jesus and the way that He works in the world, but the kind of knowledge that ultimately leads to salvation is far deeper than something that is tangible, visible, empirical. It's something that is a blessing of God. It's something that God alone does in the life of an individual. If you're here today and you know that you belong to God, you have all of the reason in the universe to praise Him. Because that knowledge was not brought to you ultimately by a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, or a church movement. It was brought to you by the very Spirit of the living God. With that in mind, would you stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. 1 John in chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that have been, that have, we have the requests that we have asked of Him. This is God's Word to us today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence so thankful as weary creatures who are not deserving of grace, and yet You have so freely and kindly given us insight into Your Word and ultimately into the person and the work of Christ such that we cry out, Abba, Father, and we have salvation in You alone. Father, 
would You write the truths here in this passage upon all of our hearts, not just for our benefit, but that Your name might be glorified above the heavens for all eternity. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. John has made in this passage his purpose very clear. The reason for his writing is that we may know. This isn't the kind of uh, knowledge that we can have that Nicodemus had without actual spiritual understanding. Uh, Ultimately, this kind of knowledge where we have a basis of knowledge but no spiritual insight is the kind of knowledge that ultimately issues out in people bemoaning academic institutions. And I've heard inside the body of Christ, inside the church, well, we don't need those institutions. And in a sense, that is true. Uh, Ultimately, real spiritual knowledge comes from God. Our relationship with the Lord doesn't take an MDiv or a DMIN or a PhD. It's something that God does. Now that should not leave us in a place where we think that learning is unimportant. Uh, Nicodemus ultimately shows us that, that we can have knowledge without understanding. But friends, we can't have a full force faith without an undergirding of some sort of knowledge. And we've talked about this before. We have the notitia, the ascensus, the fiducia in, in faith. That is, we have a, a basis of knowledge. And when we receive that knowledge and God gives us a regenerate heart, then the ascensus, we assent to that truth. We are enlivened by the reality of what we know. And then the final step, as we agree with the truth, with the knowledge that we have, there is the fiducia or the trust, the resting in what we know. So academics, I think, are important. I think it's important that we study the Word of God. If you're here today and you're not engaged in a Sunday school class, and whether it's here on Sunday morning or some form of Bible study, I I highly encourage that you continue to learn in that way. We need to know the Word of God, but that's not particularly what John is dealing with here. John is ultimately beginning to close out what he has been saying. And he wants to remind us of the reason that he wrote to us in the first place. Remember the way that he opened in chapter 1? He says, "...that which was from the beginning..." Speaking of Christ here, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father." And with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's interesting that John writes ultimately in the way that he does in closing here to say that he's writing that we would know that we have eternal life. It's interesting because John knows that he can't take for granted what we've learned in these five chapters. He knows that we are prone as individuals and collectively to miss the forest through the trees. We are prone to get bogged down in the details such that we miss the overriding purpose. And so, 
I would suggest to you that this verse, verse 13, is one of the most regulating, at least, if not one of the most important verses in all of John's writing here. Because he reminds us emphatically what it is he's up to in all that he's been writing, in all of the details that we have dealt with, in loving God and in keeping of His commandments, not finding them to be burdensome, in loving the church and in loving the truth that God has. He's been writing those things, not that we become stoic academics, not that we become sentimental church people who are not grounded in the truth, not that we make some sort of idol of our own liking, and not that we become people who are so enamored legalistically with the law, but He's written all of these things under the banner that we may know. And not just some passing, fleeting knowledge that you get at youth camp when you're seven years old and go on to live your life however you please, ignoring the Gospel. This is a kind of knowledge He wants you to have that will guide you every day of your life and will issue forth in a confidence that you are in fact redeemed of God, that you belong to Him, and that you are headed home to heaven. He wants to give you a concrete joy of knowing that though this world lies in the power of the evil one, though so much is passing away, and though we live in an age where there is so much uncertainty, we can be sure of this, that we are in Christ and belong to God. And we remember that great sweeping prayer that Jesus praise in his high priestly prayer in John 17 and really this emphasis listen to what he prays in our knowing in this prayer as he's beginning to move on in his ministry and it's about time for him to leave he prays thus starting in verse 1 When Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said Father the hour has come Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given Him. Do you hear that? To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is the eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then continuing in verses seven, in verse seven. Now they know that everything that I, ha- that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. What Jesus prays here is a particular knowledge for a particular group of people for a particular purpose and that purpose is the glory of God. That we would know that we have eternal life and that we would bring glory to God because of it. It come to bring eternal life. And in that prayer, he goes on repeating his desire that the men and women whom God had given him might possess the full knowledge that they belong to him, that they have eternal life, and that they would give glory to the Father. This is ultimately, beloved, the essence of the Christian life. To know God fully and to know that we have life abundantly 
in Christ. John has been stressing this particular knowledge, uh, this knowledge of who Christ is, that He is truly God and He is truly man. And the question is, why is John stressing against the Gnostics this understanding of the person and the work of Christ? Why is he so emphatic about this theological Christology being so important? And the answer to that is, so that we may know, that we may be sure, that in Christ and in Christ alone, we have eternal life. Now this knowledge is so important, I believe, that we shouldn't just skip over this verse and say, yeah, yeah, we know that we have eternal life. Friends, sometimes circumstances, and we'll get to this more in a bit, really press in on what we know. When we're in an air-conditioned room on a padded chair and there's no enemies threatening to persecute us physically, we may all say, yeah, I know. But you take someone in a a foreign mission field, in an Islamic country, where being a Christian means that you will be beheaded with all of your family. This question of do you know that you have eternal life has far more significance. And my encouragement to you is this. These words were written more in the context of that kind of persecution that in, in the context that we understand. So when we look at this statement that, that, that John is writing that we may know, friends, we need to take it with a gravitas that, that we would know in the face of certain persecution. That we would know to the depths of our core. I, I think when we look at this reality of this, this kind of knowing, that there is something astonishing here. Remember, as, as the lawyer Sugden's pastor said, we're worms. No, we're not deserving of God's grace. We are only deserving of the wrath of God. And yet God Himself inspired these words that He through His Apostle wants you to know that you have eternal life. This knowledge is so important. And here we are told graciously that knowledge, this certain knowledge of eternal life is first possible. That we can know. Friends, we can know that we belong to Jesus this morning. And and if that doesn't make you go, yes, then you misunderstand the problem that you face. The reality that God's judgment upon lost humanity is sure. And that God's wrath abides upon all who refuse to bow their knee to Christ. But we can know and rest in Christ. Now, immediately when I make this statement that we can know that we have eternal life, that, that, that Cam, you and I can be absolutely certain that as sure as we stand here today, we will stand before the throne of Christ and that we are the redeemed of God. We can know that. And immediately there's an entire litany of theological perspective and people that will say, I don't think that we really can know that. We can only really know that when we die. We can only know that when we get to the end of our life and all of our good works are put on this side and all of our bad works are put on that side and the scales tip and if we've done more good than we've done bad, then we'll know. But here we can't know. Friends, that's absolute hogwash. These kind of people will say that faith means 
that, that you can't know. Faith is, is believing in things that you can't see, therefore you can't know because you can't see it empirically. And we should not be presumptuous people, they will say. But I want you to see what those kinds of individuals who say it's not possible to know are ultimately doing. And that is, instead of putting the emphasis, John's emphasis, his great cry here in 1 John, is to aim at a solid Christology. To aim at the person and the work of Christ. To, to make Jesus the center of everything in your life. You struggle in your walk, in, in your life. My first question to you would be, is Christ at the center of all things? Whatever problem you face, whatever difficulty you're dealing with, is Jesus and, and, and His person and His work and, and, and His glory at the center of what you're dealing with? Now, and what we, we come to when we deal with people who say we can't know for certain that we have eternal life, we are dealing with people who are ultimately basing their knowledge not on Christ but on themselves. They are looking inward and they are making every ounce of knowledge of eternal life Dependent upon their subjective performance before God. But when we come to Christ, friends, when we have been ransomed by God and, and our hearts have been regenerated and we cry out to Him for salvation, as we face the One who gave His life a ransom for ours, then we know we don't have to depend upon subjective performance. We don't look inwardly for assurance of our salvation. We look to Christ. Think about the thief on the cross. Think about the reality that as he is sitting there next to Jesus, and first he follows the other thief and ridicules Christ, but then ultimately he comes to a point that he knows that Jesus is who He says He is. And what does Jesus say to him? Today you will be with Me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you perform well the last 30 minutes of your execution, I'll let you come into the kingdom. Jesus is certain about our salvation. Friends, one of the great travesties of modern Christianity is that there is nothing certain not even for Jesus. There are so many who will say, well, Jesus attempts to save. He, he's attempting to save those that the Father has given Him, but He hasn't actually saved them. But I would tell you, that is a, a contradiction of Christ's words. Jesus does know those for whom He died, and He is currently redeeming them in front of us. It is certain. Jesus knows, and He wants us to know. Because of this ultimately, ultimate reality, remember, those who say you, it's not possible for you to really know, those individuals are living with themselves at the core center of, the subjective, of subjective reality. That, that is ultimately where they find their confidence. But we can know because we know that our salvation is not in our hands, it's in His hands. He is the one who has completed our redemption from beginning to end. And so John here says, my whole object in writing to you now is that you would know that you have eternal life and that you would know it with all certainty. And this is exactly, is it not, what Paul says. The apostles, if they're ever 
just side note, hermeneutical principle for you, Bible study principle. If you ever come to a verse and you go, I don't know what he means there. Read all of the pastoral letters. Read all of what the, the apostles wrote in the New Testament. And if there is consistency in what they all said, that's what the first one meant. Because they speak in unison. And here we have the same thing. Paul writes of, of, of a solid knowing in Romans chapter 8. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you say, well, maybe he really didn't mean that he could know. Okay, well, what about when he wrote to Timothy? This young man in the ministry in, chapter, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he says this, But I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul says, I know. I'm certain. I have no doubt upon the One whom I have believed. But the problem, again, that faces the modern church is that everything is turned into a subjective reality. Friends, in the pursuit of truth, moderns want everything to land on our subjective experience. Tell me what you feel. Tell me what you know. Tell me your experience. And then we will construct truth around you. You know what that winds up with? A lack of certainty in eternal life. Satan is a cunning liar. And if he can get our academic institutions and our churches and our entire nation thinking in this subjective way where we aren't really sure about anything, we will stop believing the One who has given us everything. We can know. Paul and John knew upon and, and believed upon the, the One that they had believed. Romans chapter 8 again, Paul says, the Spirit Himself bears Witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This knowledge is possible. This is why the apostles proclaimed what they did in these letters. It is the substance of all of the Christian life and ministry that we would bear witness to a world you can know. Not only is it possible, but I believe it is the privilege for all of the redeemed of God. There are those who say, well, you can't know. And I hope that we've overridden that voice this morning. We can know. It is possible. But then there are those who will say, okay, if it's possible, then, then I'll concede that. But it's not something that is, is universal to every believer in Christ. There are those who, who can know because they're such godly people. They've published books. They've started ministries. They've done good works. They've gotten their, their, their name in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. They can know, but we can't. Welcome to Catholic, Roman Catholic, let me be clear, thinking. 
The Catholic Church always divides the church into different categories and classes of people before the throne of Christ. But the Bible, the New Testament, the apostles never does this. Though the Bible doesn't leave us to have this caste system of those who are really godly having confidence in knowing and those who are ungodly not knowing. Now, I want to be clear. We can lose assurance as we sin. We, we can struggle with that. But ultimately, we'll come back to in repentance still knowing if we actually belong to Christ. That's what John is telling us here. I write these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying, I write these things to who? To, to a few of the really good people? To those super saints that devote 80% of their time to the church? To those who really try hard? No. He is writing to the whole church, to all of the redeemed of God. He says the same thing in his opening in verse 3 of chapter 1. That which we have seen and heard, that is Jesus Christ, we proclaim also to you. The message of the Gospel and the certainty in the Gospel are a privilege of every person that is born again. When we see our need for Christ and we cast all of our sin upon Him and we run to Him in repentance and faith, then we know it is our privilege to know that we have eternal life. Second Peter chapter 1, in like fashion, as Peter begins to deal with the church, he writes in that opening verse, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that a fantastic opening line? He's saying to everyone who has obtained an equal standing of assurance in faith, an equal standing before God. Why? Is it because of our subjective experience, our righteousness, our ability to split theological hairs? No. The, the reason that we can know is because of the work and righteousness of Christ. Technical difficulty. Hold on. All of us who are in Christ have the privilege of knowing that we have eternal life. doesn't mean we won't face difficult days. It doesn't mean that Satan can't bring us to a point of, 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 of struggling with that knowledge. It doesn't mean that maybe, and I've known brothers and sisters that I think struggle with assurance in unique ways and for a long time. But friends, we can know. And the knowing is hinged when we stop looking at all the things we can do and we look at what Christ has accomplished. But it's more, it's more than just the, that it's possible for every Christian and it's more than it's a privilege of every born-again believer. It, it, it succinctly ends with this. It's the responsibility of every Christian who possesses the Spirit of God to know that they belong to Him again. John writing, or Jesus praying here in John chapter 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know the truth, that I came from you. 
and they have believed that you have sent me. And these may be the greatest words of Jesus' high priestly prayer in verse 27, excuse me, 24 of of chapter 17. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that, that know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love that with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We can know that our salvation is sure because we are loved with an absolutely astounding love of God Himself. The love that God had for Christ before the foundation of the world is the same love that it indwells every believer who has been born of the Spirit of God. Jesus came ultimately, He says here, to make the Father known. To redeem His people. To make certain that all that the Father had given Him would come to Him. That they would be redeemed and that they would stand at the end of days and behold the glory that is in Christ alone. So the question that we have to ask when we, we, we're asking whether or not we can know that we have eternal life really isn't first and primarily about us subjectively. There's a subjective component. But it's first and primarily a question about Christ. And it is this question. Has Christ accomplished the work of redemption? Do our sins confound Him? Is it possible that we might sin one sin too far and we don't have eternal life? Is that possible for those indwelt by the Spirit of God? Do our problems perplex Him? Maybe we're just that difficult child that that has taken far too much of Christ's attention. Or friends, do we believe that Christ came to accomplish the redemptive purpose that the Father sent Him to accomplish and that He has actually done it? It dishonors God for Him to complete our salvation through the giving of His Son and then for us to lack confidence in His finished work. It robs Him of honor when we start looking at ourselves and we say, I'm just not good enough. Friends, you never were. You never were good enough. God didn't save you because He looked down the tunnel of time and He saw your decision. He loved you and He saved you because of His divine mercy and grace. So you stay seated in Christ, united with Him because of His work, not yours. Isn't that a joy this morning? Here is ultimately what will happen when you lack confidence. It's so deceiving. John does ask us subjective questions here, doesn't he? And he's asking us these subjective questions that when we look internally, we take stock to make sure that we really have been born again, that we really have come in repentant faith, not just in some religious scheme, because he knows that will be a problem in every generation. But that doesn't mean that John is telling you that ultimate assurance comes from you. Friends, when you struggle to understand or to believe that that, that you have eternal life, look at Christ 
nine times before you look inwardly. Remember that it is not about you. Because ultimately, when you begin to lack confidence, I've seen this so many times in other people and in my own heart. When we lack confidence that we have eternal life, that we are of God, the right thing to do is to cast ourselves on the Christ, but the thing that people do often is we begin to try to improve ourselves. We begin to try to make ourselves more acceptable to God. I'll give more. I'll do more. I'll pray more. I'll, I, I'll clean up my language. I will and fill in the blank. And ultimately, what we are trying to do is to bring redemption to its fullest accomplishment. And when we start living in that way, what we are saying is that what Jesus does isn't a full atonement. It's not a, an accomplishment. We're saying that we can add to the work of Christ. But beloved, there's a reason why the church sings Jesus paid it all. It's because He has accomplished all of our redemption. He has received all that the Father has given Him. He took the judgment. He took the beating. He took the shame. He took the thorns. He took the cross. And He has ransomed the church. And He has put right in us what was broken. Isn't that a joy this morning? To know that we don't drag ourselves in here week in and week out hoping that we can just make ourselves a little bit better so that God would love us, but we come in here in, sure, uh, in assurance that Jesus has done everything we need for salvation. Are we going to spend all of our lives trying to fix ourselves, trying to redeem ourselves, trying to make ourselves look better in the eyes of men or are we going to live our lives confidently believing that Jesus has come to do what His Father set Him to do? The only way then to have boldness, to know, and to walk in Christ's likeness is to rest in Christ alone knowing that He has completed everything necessary for our salvation. Beloved, this is why oh, we could ask the question this morning, why is it that the saints of old were so able to endure such persecution and hardship? A good case study for most millennials would be the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because most millennials complain that they're not getting free college. Most of the martyrs would have just settled for a fair trial. Now, why is it that generations of Christians could face persecutions? Why is it that all over the world today, that's a reality that people will leave their families and lose everything to come to Jesus? John Rogers is one of those martyrs uh, that I think is a great illustration. He's known as the first Marian martyr. That is the first martyr under the reign of Bloody Mary. You'll remember she... Uh, I think it was after Charles VI came into power and reinstituted Catholicism as a state religion and persecuted anyone opposed to that religion. And John Rogers was burned to death at the stake at Smithfield, England, on the morning of February the 4th, 1955. Among the onlookers as he walked his way to Smithfield was his own children and his wife. At one point he asks, can I just talk to my wife for a moment? 
The response from the jailer leading him to be burned alive is, no, at one time you, John Rogers, were a Catholic priest, so your marriage isn't even uh, legitimate. Therefore, you're not going to be able to say goodbye to your wife. This man was an educated man, educated at Cambridge, and ultimately converted to the Protestant faith under Tyndale. He published a Bible called the Matthews Bible. He published it under a pen name because he knew that the consequences of publishing it under his own name was not uh, advisable, and Tyndale by this point had already been declared a heretic. According to uh, to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, when the sentence of death was passed down, Rogers again begged the jailer to let him speak a few words to his wife. The jailer refused, telling him that his marriage was not official. However, Rogers walked to the stake singing the Psalms, and he actually, history records, sang Psalm 51. He didn't go braggingly, I'm about to be a martyr. He went knowing that he was a sinner in need of the grace of God. And as he passed by his wife, unable to speak to her, he got to see his youngest child who he had never met because he had been imprisoned for so long. One of the officers then finally asked John Rogers before they burned him at the stake, will you recant your Protestant beliefs? Will you recant all that you have taught for mercy's sake and receive the Catholic faith? John Rogers' response was simply this, that which I have preached, I now seal in my blood. How is all of this possible? How is it possible for people on the basis of just a theology? And ultimately, the core, one of the core issues that John Rogers died for was his repudiation of the Catholic Mass. That is, that ultimately Christ is sacrificed afresh and anew in the Roman Catholic Mass. And Rogers said that is absolute blasphemy. What Christ has done, He's done completely. And he sealed that theological reality in his own blood. Now, why is it possible for people like John Rogers to face execution and do it while reciting the Psalms begging for the mercy of God? It is because they know that they have eternal life. It is because they know the one on whom they have believed. Listen to what Rogers wrote, and, and this is just a portion of a longer writing that he left for his children. He wrote this in prison. Come, welcome, death, the end of fears. I am prepared to die. These earthly flames will send my soul up to the Lord on high. Farewell, my children, to the world where you must yet remain. The Lord of hosts is your defense till we meet again. Farewell, my true, my loving wife, my children, and my friends. I hope in heaven to see you all when all things have their end. If you go on to serve the Lord as you have now begun, you shall walk safely all the days of your life until your life be done. Friends, assurance, absolute certain knowledge, is the hallmark of the true Christian faith. So I have one question. Do you know that you have 
eternal life? Are you an individual that can say, I know the one on whom I have believed? Now let me remind you, Ultimately, John is not saying here, do you just know about this person called Jesus and have you made an external profession of faith? John is calling us to look inwardly and to see the proofs, the fruit of what it means to be born again and to really know the living God. And he says that those who know Christ genuinely will ultimately see four things happening in their life. They will love God. They will love the brothers. That is, they will love the church. They will not find the commands of God to be burdensome. They will, in fact, seek to keep them. And they will be people who love the truth. And and what I think, again, John has asked us to do is that when we say, okay, well, let's ask the question of whether or not we love God, don't just come to that question in a stale sense and say, well, yes, I love God. The way to answer that question is to deal with the other three questions. The only way that you love God is do you love His church? Do you keep His commandments? And do you love the truth? Or those who say, I ultimately love the church. Do you really? Do you love God? Do you keep his commandments and do you love the truth we have an entire generation of people who say that they love Jesus but they find the church to be intolerant um, too full of theology and they really don't want to be bothered with the people of the church and ultimately what we find there is that they don't really love the church and they don't really love Jesus So do you have certainty in your answer? Do you have certainty that you know the one on whom you believe? Do you realize that Jesus is the one who has accomplished all things? Now, I think that joy in asking those questions about loving God, loving the church, keeping His commandments, and loving the truth is none of us do that perfectly. So we come and we cast ourselves upon Christ. We know that it is only through His finished work that any of us have a reason to stand. And to know that we have eternal life. To know that we are on the road to heaven. To know that we belong to Him. And so the question again is, do you know? Is there something in you when you hear the narrative of the biblical Jesus and His rebuke of sin and His desire to glorify the Father and His call to repentance? Is there something in you that says yes and amen? He is the Messiah. When you come to church, do you see the reality that we're all sinners and yet you find a joy in being with the people of God? Do you love pursuing the truth throughout your lifetime? Do you love understanding more and more what God calls you to in the repentant life? If you do, then you can be sure, you can know that you have eternal life. And that eternal life is because of all of the work that Christ has done. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence thankful for Your mercy. We are so thankful that worms such as the likes of each one of us would be counted among the hosts of heaven. Father, we come this morning acknowledging the reality that we are sinners. We ask that You would cause us to have greater affections for You, greater affections for Your church, greater affections for Your commands, and greater affections for the truth. Father, we know that ultimately... We could give all of our effort, we could give all of our energy, we could do everything in our own strength and we would fail. It is only by the working of Your Spirit in us that we become members of the body of Christ that bring You glory. Father, we come with that great high priestly prayer in mind that all that You have given the Son would come to Him 
and that he would lose none on the last day. Father, if there's one here today that's never turned to you in repentant faith, would you do what only you can do and convict them of sin? Bring them to a place where they cry out to you and in repentant faith for salvation. Father, I pray that in this room, those who do belong to You, that You would strengthen their faith, that You would give them bold assurance that they would know that they have eternal life. And Father, out of that boldness, that they would proclaim the goodness and the excellencies of Christ. May that ever be true in all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. As you rise to your feet this morning, we're going to sing a new hymn. It's Uh, new to our congregation called Almost Home. Beloved, one of the things that I think it's most important for us to do here on Sunday morning is not just listen to the preaching. It's to encourage one another about the spiritual realities of this life and the life to come. It is to inform each other through our singing that we are almost home. And it doesn't matter if you have five years or 50 years or 75 years left on this side of heaven. It is a blink in, in light of eternity. And friends, every day that we get to come in here and sing praises to God, we are that much closer to home. And it is our being there together that should fuel our joy and our confidence here. Let's sing Almost Home.